Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadjassad, and with me as always is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, thank you for trying something new. We really appreciate it. But I will reiterate, Ben and I are friends and automotive journalists, and you can find our work all over the internet. In fact, I'm going to get Ben to plug a couple of the recent publications that he's written for. Can you do that for me, Ben? Sure. You can find my work at Inside Hook, at Driving Line, and at Motor Trend. And is there anything else you want to plug, Ben? Yes, I also currently have a graphic novel that is on Kickstarter. It is the final two issues, but you can get the full series, all five issues of Code 45. It's about a woman named Vanessa who is a metro slash subway driver here in Montreal. And she starts working the night shift where she finds out that there are these dragons that lurk in the tunnels, these apparitions that are mysterious and malevolent and have terrified all of her colleagues who've turned to basically drugging themselves to get through uh, a night's work. She gets pulled into this underground world. She has to decide what's real, what's not, and how it ties into a secret about her own family's past. And I also want to point out, uh, it's set in the early 2000s, so it's kind of like pre-cell phone era, a bit different from the storytelling we normally see. And it it's heavily involves the rave scene, which I was a part of at that time as a, both a performer and a promoter. So you can grab it at www.code-45.com. Uh, the campaign has three more weeks to go. We're sitting at 80% funded, which is amazing. We've had an incredible response. And I know a lot of the people listening to the podcast have been part of that support. So thank you for that. And again, it's www.code-45.com. Very cool. And if for whatever reason you want to find my work on the internet somewhere, you can probably find it at um, autotrader.ca, uh, Nouveau Magazine, and driving.ca. Um, additionally, if you want to um, donate to our podcast for whatever reason before you hear the rest of our podcast, just go to a <laughs> website called Code uh, – sorry, slash Kofi? Kofi. Kofi. This is the way it is. Okay, Ben? Kofi. Kofi.com slash Unnamed Automotive Podcast. Yeah, uh, we it. just wanted to hit you up for a ton of cash right at the beginning of the podcast because that really sets the tone for anyone who's listening for the first time. <laughs> That's right. Um, and you know what? I actually want to change the format this week um, a little bit – Further beyond that, I want to talk about some news before we talk about some of our reviews. Does this does this news also require a donation? <laughs> no, none of the, nothing here requires a donation. So you say that now, but after I sit through a forty five minute presentation, I have the feeling there's going to be a hard sell. Well, yeah, but you can still opt out. Um, right. Let's talk about this new Ford vehicle that was um, announced just this past week. It's called the Maverick. Um, which is a dramatically different car than the last time you might have heard the name Maverick. I'm sure that a lot of people listening have never heard the name Maverick because it was a 70s-era compact econo car that Ford had. My father had one before I was born. He liked it, but, I mean, it was it was kind of like the... the you know how Chevy had things like the Vega and whatnot, and Ford came out with the Pinto. But, but the, the Pinto wasn't that great, so the, the, the Maverick was like an ups... like a larger, better-built Pinto... It was kind of sporty. It was like the tail end of the muscle car thing. Better built Pinto. Well, no, it, they, they didn't share a platform, I don't think. But, you know, like the Duster from that era from Chrysler? Yeah. It was the same kind of thing. It was like not quite a muscle car, but you could get a 302 in it. And anyway, it didn't last very long. It was in the 70s. I want to say five to seven years max. And mm. then it disappeared. And now they're just using the name again for a unibody compact pickup truck. Right. So I think Ford is banking on the fact that Nobody remembers the name Maverick, and well, they just, just weren't a creative enough name, right? to get a. They weren't creative enough to find a new name or something. I guess if you if you already have those patents in a in a filing cabinet somewhere, you just open them up and and here you go. I mean, car companies are pretty good at recycling. Yeah, well, recycling names, not yes. very much anything else. No. So let's talk about the Maverick. It is a compact pickup truck. I mean, compact by today's standards. It. Um, I suppose it will. It will. You know what? I'm not really sure what this thing competes with directly, but it does have some pretty impressive figures. For example, it starts at around $20,000. It comes with a standard hybrid powertrain. Um, it's adorably cute, so I don't know if that's just the photo. That's that why everyone buys a compact pickup truck. <laughs> like this. It also seems a little less rugged than most pickup trucks, a little bit more approachable, like uh, like easier to get in and out of. And um, I don't know, like it, it's an, it 
a lot of people in uh, North America, I think, are getting kind of excited about this thing. But at the same time, I'm confused as to why do we need trucks, man? Like, why do we need so many trucks? It's a really good, that's a really good question. And you know, you had asked or just just now, what is the Maverick competing with? Most directly, probably the Hyundai Santa Cruz, which is which another. Doesn't exist yet. No, which it's hasn't a... come out yet. Well, neither does the Maverick. They're both slated for 2022, and they're both roughly the same size. Which is to say, they're about as long as a as a Kia Telluride, which is not a small vehicle. So no, it's actually kind of big. It, yeah, <laughs> it's a three row crossover, and not like a not like a makeshift three row crossover, like a Durant, like a sorry Dodge Journey or. Or I don't know, Mitsubishi Outlander. Like, exactly, those yeah. Are like a proper comfortable three-row vehicle. So there's there's a lot to unpack. I think when we're looking at the Maverick, and a lot of it is obscured by a crazy amount of hype that is surrounding this truck. So size-wise, it's also about the same as the previous generation Ranger, that the one that was on the, uh, the, the one that ran from like '93 to 2010 or 20. The Orchid Man's truck. Yeah, exactly. The Orkin Man's truck. The so it's not a huge vehicle. It's probably the only real compact truck that we've had on the market in over a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's things about it, Sammy, that really kind of remove it from what a traditional truck does and kind yeah. of hobble it compared to a three row crossover. I kind of think of this vehicle as a less useful crossover. Because you're losing that covered storage area, you're losing a third row of seating, you're gaining a four and a half foot cargo bed, which is not really that great. Okay, so wait, wait. I'm trying to think of all the things I can fit in four and a half feet of of bed space. Like construction materials might not be really in. Like maybe gardening stuff? Like soil? Ford Ford has, they've given the Maverick this tailgate that allows you to, it has like a mid position that locks into place so you can, if you balance a a 4x8 sheet of plywood on top of the fender cutouts uh, Mm -hmm. inside the box, it'll hit up against the the tailgate and you you can drive around like that. So that's their workaround for having a short bed. But yeah, stuff like, you know, kayaks and and mini bikes and maybe not mini bikes, sorry, like a a mountain bike or an off-road bike, dirt bike, that kind of thing. It's going to be a little bit harder to fit it in the back of this vehicle. So when I look at this truck, I, you said, why does everything have to be a truck? I want you to kind of expand on that because I think we're on the same page for a vehicle of this size. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm impressed with the price. Uh, anything at that $20,000 price point sounds like a, like a, a vehicle for the every, every person, every man, every woman, right? Like that's a really approachable mainstream price. How can no? How can somebody look at that that starting price and say, like that's too much or that's not that's not right? Like I think at twenty thousand dollars is a really good price point, right? For sure. I mean, there are lots of vehicles that are below that. You can get like Kia Soul, Hyundai Accent, Chevy Spark. You know, there's the the Honda Fit is also below that. So, but it's not like there less, aren't options. Far less like utilitar or utility utility based, right? Like I don't know. I mean. Vehicles- I- a fit and a and a and a, uh, a soul. Those are pretty useful vehicles. Yeah, totally. Uh, I can see those ones. But you know what? Like at twenty thousand dollars for something the size of a Telluride, that might appeal to some some Americans out there. I'm not totally wow. sure. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you know, someplace with you know. So you're saying? No, I see. I think it's. I'm going to tell you a story about oh, uh, a friend of mine's father. Bad story time. He's he's. He's uh, he's Irish. He's from Northern Ireland. He came to Canada many, many years ago. Yeah. Lived here for a long time. Then he moved to Tennessee. And he's an engineer, a nuclear engineer. And he noticed it, when he was in Tennessee, almost everyone he worked with had a truck. Yep. So he wanted to get a vehicle that would fit in better at work. And so he bought himself a truck. Except he bought himself a Honda Ridgeline. Oh yeah, no. so that's the punchline to that story. So <laughs> the thing is, though, that won't fit in. I mean, it's extremely practical, useful, smart truck, but it's not like it doesn't fit in. So his heart was in the right place, though. So yeah. what I think you're saying is the Maverick is is kind of in a similar situation where if you want to fit into the truck world, but you don't necessarily want a real truck, you can get this truck and look like you're participating. Yeah, but I'm not sure about that either, right? Like, this doesn't look like a real truck. Well, there's also a few things about it that are a little strange. Like, the Santa Cruz and the Ridgeline, for that matter, 
They both take advantage of their unibody construction to offer lockable in-bed storage, which is a super useful thing because Mm -hmm. we all know pickup trucks are like the easiest thing to steal out of in the universe. Every Um, time you come to a stop sign or stoplight. People are always running up to the side of the truck and just pulling stuff out of it. You can't stop them. You have to kind of leave (laughs) like shiny stuff on the top and hope they go for that and keep the valuable stuff on the bottom. That's my barbed wire, man. Yeah, barbed wire. Yeah, but I'm not as aggressive as you are, Sammy. So the the Maverick does not offer that. No barbed wire. No barbed wire and no lockable storage. Which oh I right, think, the lockable storage. That's what we were talking. About. I think that's a little <laughs> bit of a of a misstep on Ford's part. Um, there is there is an under seat storage area in the rear, but yeah, but that... every truck in the world has that. So the reason wow. I'm bringing it up though is because <laughs> if I was to buy a a crossover or a Soul or a Fit, I have lockable storage already, right? Like it's. It's this is essentially a crossover with a bed, and the bed isn't as useful as it could be, and it doesn't have the features that its upcoming competitor will have. Uh, okay. What it does do is it tows. I mean, if you get the towing, there's a tow package that let you tow four thousand pounds, which is like similar to an Outback, I guess. Another crossover. the The in bed cargo uh, capacity, I think, is around seventeen hundred pounds. Sorry, fifteen hundred pounds. Which again. That's only 250 more pounds than you can fit in an Outback. So every everywhere I look at the Maverick, I see crossover. I don't really see truck. Yeah. Um, and there's a couple of other things that I we need to talk about. You know, the the, the base model comes with a uh, hybrid uh, powertrain with front-wheel drive, which I think is um, an interesting decision. I think that, you know, that kind of says something about the the target demographic. It's not exactly, you know, trucky or off-roady or adventure types. Um, it also comes with CVT, which is another um, factor that will probably weigh in on, on the minds of some enthusiasts, especially if you're planning on towing. I'm not sure how well CVTs do when it comes to towing. Um, and then furthermore, there is a optional um, Turbo 4, which... Um, which seems a little bit more powerful, makes 250 horsepower and 277 pound via torque, and it has an eight-speed auto. That seems like the one that that maybe the enthusiast would get. But then again, why not just get you know a real truck? Or something is that, like that the is the is that the only way to get all-wheel drive? I'm not sh- I'm not 100 certain. I don't think we. I think so, maybe, but I'm not totally. You know, there's a lot of specs here with this car, and uh, I mean, not, not that's not surprising given you know pickup trucks in general are just available in so many different varieties. Right. But I do think it's interesting, you know, because we have talked about small trucks. I, I think there was a demand for small trucks. Um, is this meeting that demand? I think they're certainly going to sell a lot of these. What because, I think, Well, with a price point of $20,000. Yeah, but keep in mind that are we actually going to see a $20,000 Maverick in a dealership? Probably not. This might be something you're going to have to pursue yourself if you want a stripped-down version of the truck. I mean, XLT, I think, is around 23 or 24 which, again, not super expensive. Uh, but this could be the contractor slash fleet special. Uh, but the thing is about the Maverick, it's clear that Ford gave up trying to sell Fiestas and Focuses. Yeah. And, and that this is, is their actually... this is their replacement for that. This Because the Echo Sport came in, mm-hmm. and it was it, honestly... Not competitive in any way, really not a great vehicle, and that didn't take up the space that had been occupied by the Fiesta or the Focus. They, it, you kind of came into a Ford dealership, and it was just like Escape was kind of the smallest thing you could get into, right? Right. So now they have Maverick, which is going to take up that place because Ford is dedicated to just selling trucks and crossovers. And there's something about that to me. I don't want to use the word cynical, but it it's a world where we're seeing. Uh, more and more variation on a single theme and that leads to kind of boring designs and stuff that's derivative and you know the Maverick is a mishmash of other platforms we've already seen but it doesn't have the off-road capability of the Bronco Sport to kind of spice it up it's just going to be a utilitarian truck that has limited utility and that's fine and okay I just don't see it as being something to necessarily get excited about like i mentioned to that i mentioned that to you uh like before the podcast that this is so weird that ford especially when they when they dumped all of their cars and instead went to this all crossover thing that there were still people and we get taught we get we get emails and, and messages from people who are like i want a car and immediately ford is out for them like that's not a thing for them and now ford is instead doesn't care about those customers and will be offering a an escape 
or a more rugged escape in the in the Bronco sport um, or a more utilitarian escape in the in the Maverick. Yeah, and it, then it's trucks, it's it's right? like like I don't think the I don't think the escape I don't think the the Maverick is a bad thing. I just it's there seems to be a lot of excitement about it, but. I can't necessarily get behind that excitement. I know I've always well, wanted smaller trucks, but this is not really a truck and not really a crossover at the same time. Did you did you have a Ranger? Yeah, I had a Ranger. So, and if I remember correctly, Rangers like Ranger drivers or owners, they actually kind of really liked how utilitarian that vehicle was and how like sing- almost singularly focused it was at being a utility truck that was affordable and small. Right? Yeah, I, I had a single cab uh, V6 five-speed with the four-wheel drive, and it was very useful. And it was super beat up, and it just, you know, it just kept running every single day. Sometimes it would smoke, uh, and I would just, <laughs> I would just not think about it at a light, and everything was fine. Um, this isn't that. This has a compromised bed, as you mentioned. It has a compromised bo- like chassis in terms of a unibody style, meaning that it will might it might not be as capable as that old. Ranger was. Um, I think that probably has similar tow towing capacity and probably has similar payload capacity uh, because modern materials and braking and all that stuff and drivetrains. Um, but you're right. It, it is a compromise. And the compromise you're getting is I think it's really you're getting an escape that doesn't have enclosed storage. And that's the choice that you're making. And you're getting a Bronco that doesn't really have off-road capability. Bronco Sports, sorry. There's an FX4 package you can get with it that'll give you, you know, upgraded cooling and all-terrain tires. And it has roughly the same 8.3 inches of ground clearance, mm-hmm. uh, which is fine. I mean, that's what you're going to get in like a, 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 I think a Jeep Grand Cherokee is like 8.7. But again, a Subaru Outback is right up there, 8.7. Yeah. But it's not going to be an off-roading vehicle. And it's... It, the, the real issue... For utilitarian vehicles is you can't get a single cab truck anymore. Very hard to get full size, impossible to get midsize, and so far you can't get it compact either. So this is again a lifestyle vehicle. It's I'm gonna say it, this is the last time I'm gonna say it. It's a crossover alternative. It's it's the Ford's version of the Subaru Baja, and that's totally fine if you're into that. I'm just I until I drive it, I don't know how I feel. Okay, I'm, I'm going to finish this this segment with one more one more like observation I've made. Trucks, um, I'm, I'm noticing a different type of utility vehicle actually on the road these days, and those are vans. Um, I see a lot of, especially during you know lockdown and, and pandemic, I see a lot of people who are um, Amazon couriers, and they use vans or, or crossovers in that space, and these things are loaded to the brim with this kind of stuff. And not to say that the, um, what is the name of the, the, the Ford... Transit Connect? Transit and Transit Connect are not great vehicles. They're they're pretty good. But, I mean, there's like a bubbliness to this Maverick that isn't found in a more utilitarian vehicle like the um, Transit. And, you know, it would be interesting to see if they're trying to to get a different audience. That would be another way of, of doing it, too. Seeing, applying that same kind of design and, and, um, and innovation to the utilitarian space, utility vehicle space to something like a van. Very quick tangent about the Transit Connect. Ford is currently facing, I believe, a billion-dollar penalty for those vehicles because they were imported as knockdown kits. Right. Um, and in, in the United States, there's something called the chicken tax, which dates back to the 1960s, where uh, the U.S. had a trade war with Germany, and the Germany had put a tax on American imported chicken, and in retaliation, Americans put a tax on small trucks. Um which is why almost every small truck that's sold in North America is assembled in the United States because it's very expensive to import them otherwise. And Ford, had, yeah, Ford had done it to impact um, Volkswagen, which was the only company that was really importing small vehicle, small trucks at that time. But flash forward to today, and because of the way the rules work, Ford, ha- when they import the Transit Connect from overseas uh, factories, they have to be careful about what kind of content is included in it, like seats and stuff, and they have to install yeah, it. Yeah, it's like a pa- it comes the passenger vehicle here, and then they remove everything, windows and seats, right? Well, I, I'm not sure if it's remove or add. I can't remember off the top of my head because the Subaru Baja, the reason it had – not the Baja, sorry. The, the, the Subaru Brat, the reason it had um, seats in the back – of the of the cargo bed was to prove that it was a passenger car, not a truck. So Subaru didn't have to pay <laughs> the import tax. Those seats were death traps. They were death traps, <laughs> but they were legal. And <laughs> uh, 
So anyway, it's just funny. We're talking about the Transit, transit Connect uh, and a small trucks, and, and the Transit Connect's all about to have a, kind of a moment of reckoning as it deals with legislation that might, you know, cost Ford a lot of money. Which could have been avoided if they just built them here. Or it could have been avoided if a rule that makes no sense oh, anymore right. at all was just taken from the books. <laughs> well, we all know that some rules, especially those really, uh, you know, toughly enforced ones, just can't be changed, right? So speaking of things that can't be changed... Um, <laughs> Good tangent. Good, good segue. What are we talking about next? We're talking about a vehicle that I hadn't driven in, I want to say, three or four years, but that had made a really big impression on me the last time I drove it, and that is the Lincoln Navigator, Sammy. Ooh. The Lincoln Navigator has always been a, a really cool truck to me, as, especially because it competes with, a, with the Escalade, and these can be kind of like Halo American SUVs, and I love that. I think that's really cool. But I do need to slow your roll, Sammy, because for oh. a long time, the Navigator was absolutely terrible. Well, I don't know about a long time and terrible. It just wasn't competitive when, like, GM really knocked it out of the park with the Escalade, right? Well, for me, it comes down to the fact that for the last 10 years or so, prior to this generation Navigator, the the, the Lincoln version was pretty much just a chromed-out expedition. It, mm-hmm. There was no real differentiation between the vehicles. It didn't make sense to spend huge money on the Navigator when an Expedition uh, could be spec to almost exactly the same um, level of features and content and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. The The other thing that I, I had some bad experiences in the Navigator too, where it just didn't feel safe in the wintertime. Uh, it felt really squirrely. Um, I drove. I remember I drove it back. The pre, this is all previous generation. I drove okay. it back to back with the QX56. And the difference in refinement and ride quality and interior, especially between those two vehicles, was astounding. And I, I, right. I pretty much wrote off the Navigator in my mind. And then when they introduced this generation, it is a completely different experience. I, I, have right. you driven it, Sammy? Uh, no, I haven't. I, at least I don't think so. But I have driven the Expedition that it's related to. So I think I have a little bit of a, a, of a baseline to well, to compare to in the world's words of britney spears you think you know but you have no idea because the difference between the navigator and the expedition now is almost a chasm i'm almost certain that that britney spears reference will go over well with our audience i think everyone knows and i would like to hear more about the navigator what are you talking about so the there's a couple things that really stand out to me about the navigator i can boil it down into design and drivetrain and okay. The current model, Lincoln went all out in terms of detail. We talked about detail so many times on this podcast, right? And and if you're making a luxury product, most cars are so good these days, you can't just throw leather in and wood and call it a day. You need to present an environment that feels upscale, that looks upscale, and and that every aspect of how a driver or passenger interacts with the vehicle kind of um, reinforces why you would pay extra for this automobile. The Navigator does such a good job at it. The seats look great. They're super comfortable. There's amazing wood detail, chrome trim, uh, leather surfaces, everything about the cockpit. It just, it's it's shocking that it comes from Lincoln after so many years of neglect. And it's a real step up over the expedition. Then you get. Aren't we we post chrome these days when it comes to luxury? We are, but I'm talking about small accents, metallic accents. It's not, it's, it's again. Uh, the there, there's a little bit of over the topness to the Navigator, like it's always had. Like the the front end has a huge grill with like an illuminated Lincoln badge. Of course, as yeah. one needs in this segment. But the front and rear of the Navigator really do differentiate themselves from the Expedition. Along the sides is where you're going to notice the most similarities, which is hard to change when you're talking about the silhouette of a huge vehicle. But they're not really – they're not carbon copies anymore. And yeah. all of that, I think, goes into the detail column. Uh, the drivetrain is also fantastic. It's got the 450-horsepower version of the 3.5-liter EcoBoost V6. And that's the same motor you'd find in, I think, the top-range F-150 Platinum. So you're getting like 510 pound-feet of torque there too, which is really absurd. It, it, the vehicle is massive, heavy, et cetera, et cetera, but it moves pretty quickly. Independent okay. rear suspension – reasonably nimble but it's going to lean in corners like anything that's huge like that but uh for me the navigator it's it's about this kind of it really does carve out a luxury experience an unexpected one uh especially for seventy six thousand, which is the base price a couple Mm -hmm. thousand more if you want the extended body style which gives you more cargo space but not more room for the rear passengers it just kind of put punches out the back of the vehicle 
Um, and I, I'm going to say something controversial. This vehicle is as good as the X7 or the GLS in terms wow, of... Wow, that is, that is, that's a pretty spicy take because your, your reference for the X7 is extremely high. Like your benchmark of the X7 is, you think it's one of the best vehicles in that segment. Yes, I do. But it's also a lot more expensive than the Navigator. Right. For the na- the for the money, I think the most expensive Navigator you can get is kind of their... They have a crazy black label trim. I don't really see the need of that. It's like 98000 But that's still cheaper, I believe, than an X7. And I think the interiors are comparable in terms of detail and and um, quality. So, and then the drive experience, because I do think that the... I do think that BMWs... I can't remember if these are... I doubt it's standard equipment, but... The technology that's in a in a X7, especially the the su- sort of driving assist features, really help turn a small vehicle, I mean a large vehicle, into something a little bit more manageable on the road. I think the Navigator feels manageable. It doesn't feel as nimble as the X7, but okay. I think it's completely unnecessary for a giant SUV to feel nimble. Like it's that's something that BMW does because that's kind of their thing. I right. don't see it as necessary. I would never drive either of these vehicles in anger like it's not right. not not an enjoyable experience either way um, but i mean in terms of that like road trip that like um oh, if it's a road, like, i don't think you notice. semi it's not a, like driver assistance features i think it's best you know, i i don't think I'm you curious, notice but. a difference i mean this has okay. lane keep and all that stuff that you get in the bmw2 it's it doesn't have the um the crystal shifter or the crystals the crystal knobs that that i know you love yes but uh, no swarovski treatment but uh i think that we have gone post chrome and pure crystal that's where we're at now experience wise (laughs) it's just very similar okay cool um i need to ask this because i'm driving a um a lincoln aviator in a few weeks and one of the one of the highlights of the of the aviator was that all of the warning chimes and stuff were like recorded by a symphony orchestra the detroit symphony orchestra i think or the new york symphony i gotta double check on that did you notice the noise in the in the navigator to be particularly um special honestly chimes i don't pay attention to that kind of stuff i find that's kind of gimmicky i do need to update something i was just saying though Mm -hmm. um there's there's so the x7 has different models right so the navigator just has the twin turbo v6 uh the the X7 has the 40i, the 50i, and the Alpina, which we won't even talk about. But <laughs> yeah, the, that's out of this. That's out of this segment. So the 40i starts at just under what the Navigator starts at, but you're getting okay. much less power. And once you start adding options that you're going to get as standard with the Navigator, the price really quickly starts to pull away. Uh, the M50 starts at 99000 And so that's the same as the top-tier Lincoln. And again, once you start adding features to the X7, you're going to start creating a massive gap between them. I'm adding this because I know some people are listening who know the actual price of the X7, and they're going to be like, wait a minute, it's not exactly a match here. But, but no, uh, it, at the same time, like um, BMW does a very like uh, a la carte almost options selection, and it seems like the moment you want to add a few features to your vehicle that aren't standard, you end up paying a lot for them. Yeah, um, I don't think Lincoln goes through that same process. I think they're probably packages are all included in the in the trim level, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit more comprehensive when you're when you're with a Lincoln for sure, and, you're, and no matter what, you're getting a huge amount of power. Yeah, I'm impressed with this powertrain that you're discussing because the EcoBoost, it is an EcoBoost, right? It's like yes. a, it's a V6 EcoBoost. That has always been pretty good. I don't know if I'd uh, associate it with a luxury experience. Sometimes it was peaky or loud. Um, is it the power is it the the transmission that does a good job here? Is that a 10 speed in this? Yeah, it's a 10 speed. And it feels refined or you just never, you know, you, you don't really want to push a, a vehicle that seems like 2 tons. Uh, very fast anywhere, it feels, right? It, it feels refined, but yeah, I mean, a big part of that is the weight. It's not going to be... Mm-hmm. It's it's a vehicle that smooths out bumps on the road because it's crushing them to death, right? So. <laughs> yes. Okay, and then finally, the second row of this Navigator, is it as luxurious as a Carnival second row? Yeah, it's. I, I would say so, except you don't get the cool Ottomans. Uh, you do get a cool center console with infotainment controls and a ton of storage in it, but cool. you don't have the cool, like, Lazy Boy aspect of it. So... Right. I haven't been in a carnival, but I was impressed with the with the Navigator. My version didn't have rear seat and en- en- entertainment as either. Like you could control mm-hmm. the front seat stuff, but you couldn't like have your own individual screen. I'm sure that's a feature you can get. No way. You, you're telling me the people in the back seat could control the infotainment system on in the 
dashboard? Yeah, I'm not sure if they're getting their, if they can control the whole vehicle, if they can just control what they want to hear through headphones, or if it's a mixture of both. It's hard to say. It's not uncommon, though, for a luxury vehicle to give that control to the person in the second row, because often you're being driven. So Mm -hmm. you don't want to necessarily ask your chauffeur to keep changing radio stations, for example. I know that's always a hassle for me. Uh, That's an uncomfortable interaction, so... Uh, no, I don't like the song. Change it. No, I don't like the song. Keep it. Let me yeah. hear this one again. Change it. <laughs> exactly. So that's kind of that's kind of how I feel about the Lincoln. I, I don't want to spend too much time on it, uh, too much more time. But okay. it's it is a vehicle that surprises me. It is a vehicle I think that is a match for its overseas peers, which is super rare when you're talking about luxury products from America, mm-hmm. from American automakers. So that's really an accomplishment. Well, that means that leaves the uh, it leaves the Infiniti QX80 in a tough spot because that always used to be a pretty interesting vehicle, and then the Lexus LX570. What was it called? I mean, neither the the 570 can't match with any. The platform is too old. I know we're getting a new one soon, yeah. but it's it's it is class below the Navigator. What's interesting is I think the Navigator is better than the Escalade. Uh, especially inside. The drivetrain on the Escalade is great, but yeah. in terms of overall refinement and appearance, I think the Navigator has a definite edge. I think you're onto something there, but I do believe that the Cadillac has features beyond, like Super like Super Cruise, um, or those infotainment systems, those like curved displays, all those really cool displays in the Navigator, which weren't too overwhelming, which is usually the case with like all touchscreen displays. Which is actually what I'm going to be talking about next. Do you mind if you uh, can I take the baton here? Can I hope? Yeah, I, do, can do I get the mic you, here? Do your thing. I've got the brand new Hyundai Tucson, and specifically the hybrid version of it. And um, the number one thing I'm going to talk about is the interior of this cabin, um, which is adorned with touch buttons and an info t- a, a touch screen. And you know what? We love touch screens. They're they're usually pretty easy to use, but not when you have to forego a knob for HVAC controls or volume controls or, or radio tuning. All of that is done through touch buttons, tapping the screen a bunch of times, which is not exactly very um, accurate feeling and can be a headache while you're on the road. This is the biggest complaint I have with this vehicle, um, which is to say that the rest of the car is pretty good. But I just want to give this as a heads up to anyone who is excited about the um, the new Tucson. It doesn't have that one usability factor that is that is pretty important to me. It's I agree with you. It's important to me as well, and I think it's something that we're losing we're losing the plot on vehicle interfaces. Yeah, and but yeah, I, I mean I don't know when that pendulum's going to swing back the other way. Well, it, we either get the the physical controls back or improved. Um, controls on the on the screen, and is, right is now that, is that really the dichotomy though? Like, <sighs> I do think so. I mean, look at our look. We used, there was a moment in time when people preferred physical buttons on cell phones. They, you know, that's where BlackBerry kind of made its made its mark there. And then now we're all onto touch. Uh, touchscreen smartphones, right? Yeah, so but I, think I, there, I was wanna... a, there was a development in touchscreen technology or the interfaces that made them a little bit more user friendly. Um, but you're right. It, it's mostly we're staring at phones. But we're not staring at infotainment screens. Yeah, that's a good point in terms of in terms of the amount of visual attention that we're paying to these interfaces to make them work properly. But in in automotive, especially, I do want to make the point that we're those interfaces, those designs are not being driven by the customer. Okay. I don't. I, at least personally, I don't think customers went into Ford, went into Mercedes Benz, and said, "I don't want any buttons anymore. I want a black piece of plastic that only comes to life when I turn the vehicle on. I don't mm-hmm. want any feature differentiation until the vehicle is running, and I want it to be a hassle and a little bit hard for me to figure out how to do something while I'm driving." I refuse to believe that. that I want what... to see my fingerprints on this on yeah, this thing. I want the, my fingerprints to obscure my every action. It's like <laughs> yeah. this is something that's driven by designers who want a super clean interface. It's also driven by cost. It's very cheap to make a TFT panel compared to making a whole bunch of buttons and then installing them and making sure they all line up and all that good stuff. So yeah. again, where is the design impetus coming from? It's coming from it's being handed down from above and you don't have any choice. You just have to buy it. Okay. Um, I'm going to continue this conversation with the rest of the Tucson um, hybrid and especially discussing the exterior design. This is an extremely wild looking vehicle. If you thought the Elantra looked kind of crazy, this is the next step into it. And the number one thing you'll point out is that they've integrated their headlight design into the grille. um, These really neat like kind of cubic headlight um, 
you know, signature. Really cool looking vehicle. And then even at the rear of the vehicle, they've got these kind of like uh, taillights that kind of look like fangs, honestly. And I think it looks really cool. You're all about the, fangs, though. I mean, I get it. I know. You know me. I have a, you know, I have a thing for werewolves and vampires and all of their fangs. <laughs> um, the only problem I have is the side profile of the vehicle. They have a lot of very harsh creases in the side profile of the Tucson. And in some cases, like, my wife looked at it and she said, yo, it looks like someone crashed into this car. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> and I think she's not wrong. You have to be okay with that kind of angular design. Um, but I think it was a bit polarizing. Other people definitely uh, pointed that as, out as well. But the main reason I think you would buy one of these um, hybrid versions of the Tucson, you want good fuel economy. This thing can get, um, I think I showed you this before, about 38 or 37 miles per gallon combined, which is pretty good. But it is actually a few ticks below the current standard, I think, in the segment, which is the Toyota RAV4 Hybrid. And that's a really important thing to talk about. I also had the RAV4 Hybrid on hand to compare to the Tucson Hybrid. And there's a big difference in the way these two cars drive. So you're not a big fan of the RAV4? I'm actually a very big fan of the RAV4, but only in its hybrid form. Yeah, that's what I was pointing out. It's like, And I understand that because it is the most powerful version and also the most frugal version at the same time. And I think it has the nicest spec in terms of interior and features. But... You're also a big Hyundai fan, so like, this is going to be an interesting battle. Okay, so I'm I'm going to correct you here. The gas-powered version of, of the Rav Four always feel a little unrefined. I don't know if it's the transmission, that eight-speed automatic, that feels kind of clunky at low speeds. I've always had issues with that, and then the fact that you've got a kind of um, average vehicle in every aspect. And you're paying the, the regular price for it. But the hybrid versions of it get a smoother powertrain because of a, uh, an electronic CVT and two electric motors. You get um, better fuel economy and you're not paying all too much more for it. So I do think that the, the, the RAV4 hybrid and then especially at the top end of the level, that RAV4 Prime, are fantastic vehicles. If you're getting a RAV4, almost any Toyota in fact, and it's not the hybrid, you're, you're making a mistake. You've really got to double check that. The... Tucson, on the other hand, doesn't use a CVT. It has a six-speed automatic, which is kind of a strange thing today. Um, it feels like it's a few gears behind. It uses one electric motor instead of two. It has a 1.6-liter turbocharged four-cylinder engine. And we both know that turbocharged four-cylinders, they, they can be a little... They can be hit and miss when it comes to fuel economy. If you want the performance of a turbocharged six, you end up... I mean, a turbocharged four... You end up winding it out, and when you're winding it out, you get no, no, no fuel savings. No, and you also start to notice the vibrations and harshness associated with winding out a very tiny four-cylinder engine. Exactly. Now add that to a six-speed automatic instead of an eight-speed with tighter ratios, and now you're going to start to understand why I will why I will call the Tucson Hybrid a little less refined than the Rav Four Hybrid. That's where I'm at with this thing. I, I just. It has some. It has some room to improve, especially with the powertrain. I don't know uh, if it's the turbo, if it's the automatic, if it's just the synergy of the two. Because even there were times when you know I'm driving around in, in all electric, and I need to make a pass, and there's that moment, that really hesitation, where you're waiting for the gas motor to fire up and the transmission to select the gear. And that's just way too much waiting. It's just clunky. It's not good. So, do you think this is a vehicle that was built just so that Hyundai could be in that space? I don't know, because Hyundai has a ton of uh, hybrids now, right? Like from the Ionic and the Sonata and the uh, Elantra, uh, and I'm sure I'm missing a few others. I guess you're right. They need to have something on paper to to say that they can compete. And it's not that it's a bad vehicle in other ways. I mean, it has a ton of features. Again, I, I had um, a nice you know, wireless phone charging. I had vented seats. Um, I had – I'm trying to think of the other features I had now. Heated rear seats. What else can I add to this list? But these are all things you can get in the non-hybrid too, right? It's not it's not just limited yeah. to this vehicle. Yes, exactly. These are things that you can get in non-hybrid. And there is going to be a plug-in hybrid version of the Tucson to compete to with the, the RAV4 Prime. And maybe but, that's where we're going to see the more advanced transmission and drivetrain. Yeah, maybe. Um, but I just was not impressed with this one part of the vehicle. The powertrain is not there. Everything else is there. Although I did complain about the infotainment system being a headache as well. And how much so, is this, how much is this going to cost 
uh, over like what's the cost comparison between that with the Rav Four? If you, I can't rem- remember if you if you had said that already. I didn't how, say that. How much more is it going to cost me versus the nicest version of the Hyundai, like the gas only? Okay, those are a lot of questions. Let me go through them one. It's by actually one. two questions, but okay. no, no. There, there's a lot to talk about here because um, the Rav Four, for example, you can get in some in like four trims, I believe. But what about base to base or three trims? Maybe let me see. Um, and the Tucson, you go, you can get in three trims, although two of them are kind of the same. It's very strange. One is kind of like a fuel efficient, uh, a more fuel efficient version of it called the Tucson Blue. Okay. Um, that used to be their whole branding, right, for their hybrids. Yeah. So you can get a a Tucson hybrid for just under thirty thousand um, dollars, which is roughly the same price of a of a um, of a base Rav Four. Okay. Okay. Uh, let me just make sure that I'm I'm not making a mistake on that because I just got bumped off of I just got bumped off the build sheet here. All right. Well, that's fine. But I mean, <laughs> it, it, so it's fine. I'm, we're ruining the poor podcast. Here. What you're saying is, aside from styling, there doesn't really seem to be a compelling reason to go with Hyundai. The features, I think, is the biggest is the biggest deal here. Really. Yeah, actually, you can get a base Rav4 LE hybrid for twenty eight thousand, which is a thousand dollars less than the base Tucson hybrid. I mean, that's a pretty good deal, but like you said, I, the equipment is probably going to be the equipment is is way different. Yeah. And again, the styling. I actually kind of like the rugged, squared off look of the Rav4. Yeah, the I don't interior, mind it at all. The interior is full of these like chunky, rubbery buttons, and you know you don't have to fiddle around with an infotainment system. But then again, that infotainment system, that like touchscreen interface, is really dated and really not glamorous looking at all. Um, I just think that you maybe you're onto something in saying that they had to make something like this. Um, the fully loaded uh, Tucson Hybrid is thirty-seven grand. Okay, which is I think much cheaper than a fully loaded limited um, version of the Rav. For hybrid, let me just make sure. Which costs no thirty-seven as well. So they're about the same price there. Um, so so the, I mean, sorry, go on. I, it's like the opposite situation. When when I said that the Rav Four, if you're getting a Rav Four and it's not the hybrid, you're doing yourself. You need to really double check and make sure that's what you want. When it comes to the Tucson, I think actually it's better off. Um, getting a gas-powered version of the car, and while you might not be enjoying the good fuel economy, you get a more uh, a more cohesive experience, a more refined experience, and you get all those features that make the Tucson worth getting in the first. I, place. I, I, I think that's an important differentiation. Right. Any, um, anything else to to wrap up the uh, Hyundai? No, I do, I do have to admit again that design is really st- is really strong. It's a shame that the exterior design does not kind of like. That emphasis on the exterior design does not translate into the interior where usability is impacted. That is a big problem, I think. And uh, tapping on a screen to change volume gets old real quick. It is the worst. Are there steering wheel buttons? There are. Of course, of course, there's steering wheel buttons. Are are there useful steering wheel buttons? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, of course, there's like I think there's two rockers on each side or something like that. And so that's the problem is you have to get you have to get quickly accustomed to how you're going to um to adjust the volume. Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. Um, I, Why I, don't we go into the last piece of our of our podcast and talk about a book that you've been reading recently? Yeah, so this is a book I wanted to talk about today. Um, just just quickly, it's called uh, BMW M3 M4: The Complete History of These Ultimate Driving Machines. So this is a book from Volace, and it's written by Graham Robson. And this is a, another big coffee table book, but I want to stress how much information has been packed into this book. It's absolutely incredible. It covers everything from the beginnings of the M program with the M1 and the um, 535 from the the early 5 series. It it talks about uh, the development of the E30 M3, uh, the racing program associated with it, and it goes all the way to the modern-day car. But in between that, it's like every conceivable detail, Sammy, that you could ever want to know about the M3 or the M4 is here. And it's it's going to make it tough to talk about the book because, honestly, you can get so lost. Like, 
there's chapters where it's just basically talking about like the decisions they made for the the, the four cylinder engine for the original M3 and like where it came from on the competition side and how it fit into their homologation plans and and you know like how they had to fight between reliability and performance and whether they were going to do a six or a four and, and and all the rally regulations and stuff that that fed into this it's just it's just nuts. Uh, sometimes these books they they kind of feel like a cursory gloss over of the subject with lots of pretty pictures and this thing this is like wikipedia in book form if it had been written cohesively by an expert that's awesome i really like that first of all i want to know does it cover all generations of the um of the m3 and m4 yeah it does does it is a new is a new development so it has it it goes it goes up to the g20 uh, which Sick. is which is ridiculous, um, and it talks about the the um, the ones that the, the 2020 model. I mean, it, it does its best to, to cover that as well. There's a couple things. I mean, I would recommend this book if you're a BMW fan. Uh, once again, it's from Veloce. It's 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 Graham Robson wrote it. BMW M3 M4 Complete yep. History. Uh, but there's two things I want to talk about specifically from this book that I didn't know about that I think would be interesting to our listeners. And the first is. I, the SMG transmission, Sammy. Yes. Oh, this poor, this poor transmission that got railed on by everyone on the planet. So it's terrible, and it is a for those it's of you who are described as a single single clutch automatic transmission. Right? For, for, yeah. If you're not familiar with it, it was in North America. It arrived with the E46 M3, and what it was was the six speed transmission that had been available with the car, like the normal six-speed transmission, but they added all these actuators onto it and made it computer-controlled. It was exactly the same transmission. In fact, if you have an SMG car, you can remove all the computer stuff, add add a clutch, and drive it like a manual, like a traditional manual. And a lot of people had to do that because it had so many problems, um, not just with jerky shifting and uncomfortable performance, but it would just break. And better than fixing the SMG was just converting it to the manual. So... In North America, it was here with the E46. I didn't know this, but it had been developed, Sammy, for the E36 generation before that. Wow. Okay. And, and there, there it were certain, wasn't good enough then. Well, there were certain versions of the car that came with that that were never sold here. Uh, and it was somewhat popular. And like back in the 90s, BMW did their best to kind of talk it up and be like, oh, this is kind of the future. And like, you know, we're developing it as we go and people who bought it were more forgiving i think because it really felt like cutting edge technology and, and bmw kept comparing it to the f1 transmission that formula that uh, sorry ferrari was offering right. with the 355 at the time yeah um also not a great transmission but uh i had no idea i really had no idea so this book um i i'm far from an m3 expert but it, it definitely taught me something i also found out sammy that the e46 was almost a v8 the E46 was almost a V8. Yes. And that's what they ended up going to with the E90, the generation afterwards. Right? Yeah. So the, the reason it didn't, the reason it almost happened with the E46 was they weren't sure how much bigger they could make the straight six engine that they've been developing for about 10 years um, because of the way the block, the cylinder walls, the thickness of the cylinder walls. And they didn't want to really push it. Um, but finally, they got it out to, I believe, 3.2 liters, which is what we ended up getting. But there was a whole bunch of debate because they had the V8 version of the M5 that had come out and it was super popular. And they were like, are we really, do we really want to put a heavy engine like that in the front of the BMW 3 Series? Like it's going to have a, a fairly large impact on balance and handling and stuff. And eventually right. they decided not to. But for a while, it was it was up in the air. That's really. I think that's really cool that they really thought about that power to balance sort of ratio there um, to ensure that the you know it might get a lot of horsepower and it certainly did in the in the years following uh, when the V8 was incorporated into the vehicle, but it impacts the the nimble nature of the of the M3. Can you give me your take on? Do you have a rankings or a thought process on generations of M3? I haven't driven a lot of them. So okay. it's very hard for me to say. Uh, the I mean, uh, I really do like that E ninety that M that V eight powered um, M three, which had like a ridiculous red line, like eight thousand RPM for a V eight. It was so sick. I was not a huge fan of that engine because it had no torque. Oh. 
And oh. and I remember I would hunt them down with my CTSV <laughs> yeah, and okay. demonstrate the strength of, of torque and street knowledge, <laughs> let's just say, uh, right. which I always found interesting. And on a racetrack, too, even in a race environment, the V8 M3s versus my Cadillac, which is roughly the same era, uh, they weren't particularly quick. I've always liked the E46. I think it's the best looking of the M3s. Mm-hmm. And that that eight I think it's eight thousand RPM um, red line on that engine, but the you know the E thirty six that came before it drives really nice. Uh, a friend of mine had it for a long time. North America kind of got shafted on the engine department. We didn't get the cool three hundred plus horsepower motor that Europe got, or even the slightly less tuned European engine. We kind of, we got a, a weird kind of S fifty M fifty mix, but it's it's a great chassis. And it was a huge improvement over the E30, which I, the E30 gets a lot of style points, uh, but the suspension wasn't all that sophisticated, and it wasn't uh, as complete a car, I think, as the car that came after it. Interesting. Okay. Um, what do you think of these current uh, sort of examples of the M3, M4? Uh, not the biggest fan. Yeah. Do you, you You have to share the same thoughts that are like, these are now just like, they're digitized. They're weapons, right? Like, they're just track weapons or road weapons or something like that, right? Like, they're just not there the there's, way you want them to be. There's a lot of bench racing. It's a disconnected yeah. experience. Um, they're very quick cars. If that's what you want, go for it. But, I mean, we've said it a million times on the podcast that the M2 is probably a much better buy if you really care about driving. And now that we talked, uh, now that you've brought up the M2, do you think that is the true successor to the original idea of the M3 and M4 when you, after going through this book? I don't think so. I think it's uh, an entirely different type of vehicle. We're, the old school is gone. That stuff's done. We're never getting anything like that again. And I think it's just kind of wishful thinking to think that the 2 Series is... I mean, it's still like a... 2 Series is like, what, 3,300 pounds? 3,400 pounds? I mean... Yeah. You know, I mean, that that's fine. But that's not what an E30 weighed. It's not what an E36 weighed. It's We're never going to be back in that era again. Now, one final question is, did the book bring light on the any early iterations of the selfie cam that was introduced in the BMW iX that was revealed last week? So no chapter on the selfie cam. Um, no talk about EVs at all. Uh, so I think that if that's what you're into, you're going to have to get a different book, Sammy. <laughs> okay, fine. Um, I want to close up this week's podcast. What do you say? We're going to tell people where to find more episodes of our podcast. You can do that. Easily by going to unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. Once you're there, you'll see a list of all of our recent episodes, or all of our episodes if you really want to. You can even search and figure out what car you want to hear us talk about. Um, And if that isn't there, you can probably get in touch with us really easily by using the contact form on our website. Uh, You just fill that out. It lands in our inbox. We check it out. We talk to each other. Uh, We usually send you an email back saying thanks. And you can also get in touch with us over social media. You can find Ben on Instagram. He's at Hunting Benjamin. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. Um, one final request from me is if you do use a podcatcher of any kind to listen to our podcast, if there's an option to leave a review, please do that. It helps other people find um, our podcast and we can expand our audience. It is super helpful if you can do that. Sammy, what are you going to be driving next week? Next week I have the new Wrangler Rubicon and it's got this weird designation at the end of it. It's not a 4x4, four four, but a 4x E. Four e, and I'm trying to figure out what that means. I've got a – well, while we're pondering that, um, I'm going to be talking about the Audi RS6 Avant and a very special guest uh, vehicle, the Aston Martin DBX, the, uh, the first Aston Martin SUV. Very cool. I can't wait to talk to you about it. And I hope that our listeners will tune in next week to hear you talk about it as well. Bye, everybody. Bye.